0: we continue this evening our study looking at the biblical covenants. We have, of course, so far looked at the creation covenant, we've looked at the Noaic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, and now we are looking at the Mosaic covenant. We began that a couple of weeks ago. And in our last session, we looked at the Mosaic Covenant specifically as it was revealed at Mount Sinai or Mount uh, Horeb. This evening we're continuing to look at the Mosaic Covenant, only now uh, as it is renewed and explained and expanded further in the plains of Moab before Israel as a nation finally, after 40 years, makes its way to enter into the land of Canaan. Uh, But I think it's worth remembering some of the things that we looked at about the Mosaic Covenant, specifically at uh, Sinai. Um, First, you'll remember that the uh, covenant is given uh, in the book of Exodus, in Exodus 19 uh, to 24, And uh, we saw that it begins with a uh, preamble that describes the relationship between the Lord and the people that He's about to enter into the covenant with. Uh, The Lord reminds the people of Israel uh, that He is the God who saved them from Egypt. And now... He's going to enter into a covenant with them. And if they keep his covenant, they will become his treasured possession, a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. If they keep his covenant, they will fulfill the Adamic role of being both a people who are priests who serve in the presence of the Lord, who mediate worship of the Lord, and the people who carry out that original creation mandate to have dominion uh, on the earth and to to carry out God's rule on earth. Uh, But this role, of course, will be conditioned on them keeping their end of the covenant. And this is important to remember because this is unlike the covenants that we've seen thus far where the fulfillment of the covenant does not depend on both parties. God establishes and he upholds the creation covenant and the Noahic covenant despite the rebelliousness of man. The fact that we are going to continue to have seasons, the summer and and the winter and the fall and the spring, Uh, these things are not going to be dependent on whether or not man keeps the covenant and doesn't become a murderer, right? You you remember that part of the covenant involves the the capital punishment of those who uh, would shed the blood of man, and, and God does not, in, in the Noahic covenant, his upholding of that covenant is not going to be dependent on man continuing to be righteous. No, no, man is going to continue to be unrighteous, and yet the Lord is continued, He's going to continue to be faithful to that covenant. God will establish and uphold also the Abrahamic covenant and the promises given to Abraham regardless of Abraham's own failures or the failures of his children of course we know even in the life of Abraham there are times in his life where because of his own actions there is what appears to be a threat to the covenant right a threat to this promise of of an offspring Abraham sort of trying to you know take the fulfillment of this promise in his own hands and it results in family disasters and of course he doesn't have uh, some of the best judgment as well when he goes to Egypt and he's telling his you know wife to pretend to be his sister which puts her in danger of having children through pharaoh which is a, a danger to the covenant but but despite all of these failures even in the life of Abraham and his children god is going to uphold his covenant and his promises. But in this Mosaic covenant, both parties are obligated to uphold the covenant. And if one of the parties fails to do so, of course as Israel did repeatedly generation after generation, if one of the parties fails to uphold the stipulations of the covenant, then the curses of the covenant will come upon them. So this relationship is established in Exodus 19. But then, second, we saw that the covenant, as it is revealed, consists of two parts. There is the Ten Words, or what we call now the Ten Commandments, and we saw that uh, just as God brought about creation through ten words, you'll remember there's ten times in Genesis chapter 1 where we read, and God said, and God said, and God said. In the same way that God brings about creation through these ten words, so also now is the nation of Israel being created through these ten words. This, this, uh, this relationship is being established between God and Israel. But we also saw that the second part of the covenant is called in Exodus 21 verse 1, the rules or the judgments, the mishpatim. And and these we saw are various case laws. These are examples of common situations and common practices of the ancient Near East or situations that could arise and how the people of Israel are to apply justice to each of them. It's it's like a representative sample of of different cases. But the covenant as a whole consists of these two divisions, the words and the judgments. And when Israel enters into the covenant with God, it is the covenant as a whole that they are obligated to to keep. We're told in Exodus 24 that Moses wrote down both sections of the covenant, and there was then a a covenant-making ceremony that took place in order to to ratify the covenant. You'll remember there was an altar that was erected with these 12 pillars or 12 stones that are around the altar, and, and... and blood of a sacrifice is sprinkled some on the altar, which represents God in the midst of his people. And, and then when it says that you know, the blood was sprinkled on the people, that's, that's not like like every single individual in the nation. It's, it's sprinkled on all of those different, the different stones that represent the 12 tribes of Israel. And so this, this covenant is being ratified through this ritual uh, ceremony. And then we're, t- we're told... Um, they, they ratify this covenant. We read in Exodus 24 verse 3 that Moses came and he told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. And here, the word for words is really just shorthand for saying the whole covenant. He wrote down the book of the covenant. It's called the words of the Lord. It's a, it's a, basically, it's a title that's given to the book of the covenant That specifically mentioned. That phrase, book of the covenant, is mentioned in verse 7. But the title, if you will, of the book of the covenant is called the words, the words of of the Lord and this happens all throughout the Bible it's often the case that um, in Hebrew and Hebrew uh, books as we have here um, and even as uh, later Jewish authors, Jewish people like, like Jesus, they will often use um, a single word, uh, usually the, the first or, or close to the first word at the beginning of a book in order to title the book. Right, so we, we have this especially, um, or, or in particular, with, with the, uh, the Pentateuch, the first five books of, of the Bible. Um, so for example, the book of Genesis is named after the first words in the book, "Better sheep in the beginning. That's, that's the name of the book. Right? You can call it, well, hey, what's the first book of the Bible? Uh, in the beginning. <laughs> that's the first one. Uh, the book of Exodus in Hebrew is actually called "Names." Right? The book of Names. Uh, it's because one of the first words that we find there, "Shemot," begins uh, or, or begins the book. It, it refers to names. Right? These are the names of the sons of Israel. Is how Exodus begins. Leviticus also is called "And He Called," because it begins, "And He Called." Right? So that's the title of the book of Leviticus in, in Hebrew. And then Numbers also is called in the wilderness because it begins, and the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness. And then Deuteronomy is called the words because it also begins, these are the words which Moses spoke to all Israel. All right? The same is the case here in Exodus 19 to 24. The Whole book of the covenant is likewise called the words, because it consists of these two parts of the covenant: the words and the judgment. And the words being first just makes the title of of the covenant. Right? Um, we also see this. We see this uh, sort of abbreviating. Uh, of, of a of a book or of a title, naming it after the the first book. We see this in the New Testament. You know, I mentioned earlier, like Jesus does this. Or early uh, Jews in the first century did this. So so perhaps you know you'll you'll read, for example, Jesus will refer to the Law, the Prophets, and the Psalms. Right? Well, he's he's not he's not leaving out there like the Book of Proverbs and the Book of Ecclesiastes and and other books of the wisdom literature. The way the the Jews um, divided the the Old Testament canon was, was, was like that. You had the law, which was the first five books, and then you had the prophets, the former prophets, beginning with the book of Joshua, and then you had a third section in the Hebrew canon, which is sometimes called the writings, but the very first book in their canon is Psalms, and, and that being the first book of the writing section, if you refer to the Psalms, you're referring just to that whole third section. Right? So when Jesus talks about the law of the prophets and the writings, or the law of the prophets and the Psalms, it's just another way of saying the whole Old Testament. Right? So that's just one of the ways that, that, that Jews would title certain uh, books. But all this is to say that the, both the ten words and the judgments make up the whole covenant. And it's this whole covenant that Israel is obligated to keep and that must be fulfilled unless the curses of the covenant come upon them. And then at the end of chapter 24, we find that Moses is up on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights, and he's receiving additional instructions for the building of the tabernacle and the proper worship of the Lord. Of course, that then leads into the book of Leviticus, where you have more uh, ritual regulations about worship and and practices that that take place um, within the tabernacle. Uh, But while he's um, on the mountain with the Lord, this is also where the Lord writes down the law and the commandments on two tablets of stone. And we often hear, right? I'm sure you've heard this before, we often hear that one tablet was for the first four commandments. Detailing our relationship, man's relationship between God and, uh, and man's, our, our vertical relationship. and then the, the second tablet is our, our horizontal relationship, you know our, how we relate to uh, our neighbor and our obligations to one another. And, and really, I mean, theologians. Uh, even in the the reformed world, they'll they often debate. You know what exactly was on. You know the Ten Commandments, or, or this tablet, or that tablet. Was it was it these first three commandments, four commandments? How how was it? But this is really to miss the point of the purpose for having two tablets in the ancient Near East, and particularly with the Hittite treaties, which is what the Israelite covenants are uh, modeled after, or what they at least reflect. The Mosaic uh, Covenant, uh, or excuse me, in, in the ancient Near East with these uh, Hittite treaties, uh, two copies of the treaty were, were always written. Okay. And um, w- one of the copies would be for, say, the Hittite king, and it would go uh, within the temple of his god. And then the other copy was for the, the other nation, the, the vassal nation, and it would go in the temple of their god. Right? So whenever you made a treaty, there would be two copies that were written. And here, two tablets are given because that's just how treaties were made. And the covenant is like a treaty. It's made between a king, here, in this case, the Lord, and his vassal nation, here, in this case, Israel. Only both copies, in this case, are kept in the ark and the tabernacle because, again, in this case, both the parties are in the same land, right? This is, this is again, not, not a covenant that's made between one nation who's geographically in a totally different territory, right? No, no, both copies are going in the same temple because it's between God and his people in the same land. But that's, that's probably the reason why you have the, the two tablets there, not necessarily because, you know, there, there wasn't enough room, right? Uh, you know, we're told as, as well that that writing was on both the front and the back of the the, uh, the, the tablets, right? And presumably, it's going to be the same on on each one because that's how treaties would have been made. So, the covenant is written on two tablets of stone, uh, but of course, before it is given to Israel, uh, Moses comes down from the mountain. And he finds that the people are already violating the covenant with their idolatry. And what does he do? He smashes the tablets. And um, I'm sure there was some anger that was involved there. But that's not primarily what's going on. He's breaking the tablets of stone in order to symbolize... The fact that the Israelites have just broken the covenant. That's what's going on. This covenant that, that is so fresh that Moses hasn't even had an opportunity to officially hand it over to the party that's involved. It's so fresh that it, 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 it's already been broken. He, he, he breaks it to symbolize this, this shattering of, of the covenant. This, of course, eventually leads to Moses going back on the mountain for an additional 40 days and 40 nights where he returns again with two more tablets of stone containing the content of the covenant. Now, uh, we know as well from the book of Numbers that this first generation of Israelites will again break the covenant. will do so repeatedly over and over again. And so God judges them in the wilderness, and practically the entire generation of Israelite people who came out of Egypt will eventually die in that 40 years of judgment uh, in the wilderness before entering into the land of Canaan. Where Deuteronomy picks up is where now that whole first generation practically has died off. Forty years have now passed since coming out of Egypt and seeing God at Sinai. And now a new generation of Israelites is about to enter into the land of Canaan just as God and, and in accordance with God's promises that he had made some 400 or so years earlier to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He would give this land of Canaan to Abraham's offspring. They are at this moment currently in the plains of Moab on the eastern side of the Jordan River. But before they cross over, Moses leads them to make a covenant with God. And it's a covenant that basically reaffirms as well as renews the covenant that was made at Sinai while also making some new additions. I think the best way to think about this covenant that's made in Moab or in the plains of of Moab in relation to what happens at Sinai is that this covenant here in Deuteronomy is essentially a covenant that is made to keep the covenant at Sinai. So it's it's kind of both a renewal as well as a reaffirmation as well as an addition. All of these things are are happening simultaneously. But, But basically, it's a covenant with this new generation to keep the covenant of Sinai. And we see this particularly in Deuteronomy uh, 29. If you look with me there in uh, Deuteronomy 29 and uh, verse 1. Deuteronomy 29 verse 1 we read, These are the words of the covenant that the Lord commanded Moses to make with the people of Israel in the land of Moab besides, or, or another way that, that you could translate this and, and probably capture the, the meaning of the word a little bit better, but in addition to. Right? So the, the, these are the words of the covenant made in the land of Moab in addition to the covenant that he made with them at Horeb. Right? And so you see here that a covenant was made with Israel at Horeb or, or Sinai, and this covenant that we find in Deuteronomy is an additional covenant that is made in Moab. But the two, of course, overlap. They're saying a lot of the the same things. One is reaffirming uh, the other. other. Uh, That is the covenant at Moab, a covenant we find in Deuteronomy is reaffirming the Sinai covenant, which is one of the reasons why the ten words are given yet again as well as the judgments. But now, additional instructions are given to the people of Israel that are going to determine and shape Israel's relationship to God and others, specifically in the land of Canaan. This is how your life in Canaan is supposed to look. And moreover, this covenant that's made at Moab is explicitly made not only with the first generation of Israelites who will enter Canaan, but also all of the succeeding generations of Israelites. So if you look further down in Deuteronomy 29, verse 14 to 15, we read there, uh, the text says, It is not with you alone that I am making this sworn covenant, but with whoever is standing here with us today before the Lord our God, and with whoever is not here with us today. In other words, this covenant is not just for the present generation or even those few who were remaining from the past generation, but this covenant is made with all generations of Israelites in the present and future, all who are going to be living in the presence of God, in the land of Canaan. now um, as I mentioned earlier, the, the book of Deuteronomy especially, is largely structured, uh, very similar to an ancient Hittite treaty. Uh, the content, of course, I mean what you find contained within it is, is going to be very different, of course, reflecting the monotheism of, of Israel and and the fact that the content is, is really made up of three sermons given by Moses. You've got one from chapter 1, verse 1, going down to chapter 4, verse 43. You have a, a second sermon that begins chapter 4, verse 44, carries you through chapter 28, verse 68. And then you got a third sermon from chapter 29, verse 1, that continues through chapter 30, verse 20, with a concluding prophetic song of Moses that that ends uh, the book. But the structure also reflects the structure of Hittite treaties. So so both Deuteronomy and Hittite treaties begin with a preamble. You would find this, for example, in um, the first five verses uh, of the book of Deuteronomy. Um, both then provide a, a historical prologue that's detailing the historical relationship between each parties. And of course, you can think about those early chapters of the book of Deuteronomy from chapter one uh, towards the end of, of chapter four, where you've got the historical relationship that's outlined between God and Israel. And, and how God saved them from Egypt, how he led them through the wilderness and, and, and saved them from all of those different kings uh, in the wilderness. Both uh, this, uh, this book, Deuteronomy and Hittite Treaties, both of them provide stipulations of the treaty and, or the covenant, and, and those, those can, can be very general, you know, broad laws um, or commands. You shall love the Lord your God. Very general. And, and then you've got like case laws, things that are very specific. Both of them contain those features. Both appeal to witnesses, uh, to witness what is taking place. Right? You can think about the, um, the covenant ceremony that would take place on Mount Ebal, right, where, where basically the, the, the nation of Israel is bearing witness to before God and, and to one another, that if they break this covenant, you know, may the curses of the covenant come upon them. And then both, of course, have uh, blessings and curses. Only it's, it's interesting that um, with, with the Israelite covenant, with, with Deuteronomy, it's, I can't remember, if it's curses first and then blessings, and then the Hittite is blessings and curses. That One of them have a, have a different order. But anyways, very similar. Um, but the importance of, of this is, is twofold. One has to do with the dating of the book. There's a lot of critical scholars, for example, who, who like to argue that uh, the book of Deuteronomy really should be dated to like the fifth century B.C. This is this is after the exile. Now, this book is not written until uh, the Israelites come back from from Babylon, and then you've got this you know Deuteronomist writer who's you know basically trying to make some political maneuvers and and reshape the, you know, the nation of, of Israel to be you know uh, more religious, uh, ha- have more strict laws and, and commands. and The basic idea is that Deuteronomy is written much, much later. And there's a, there's a variety of reasons for, for these kinds of arguments, and a lot of it typically with critical scholarship just has to do with they want to reject the history of Israel, and they want to reject all the miracles, and they definitely want to reject all of the prophetic aspects of it because even in the book of deuteronomy of course we already have prophecies of what's going to happen to the nation of israel they're going to break the covenant they're going to be sent into exile and then the lord's going to bring them back okay well if you're an unbeliever you don't believe in prophecy what do you do with that well you just move the dating and then you make it sound sophisticated Uh, But there are, uh, uh, of course, a lot of critical scholars who will argue that this has a a much later date. But the fact that the structure of the book matches that of 14th century Hittite treaties and no other treaties from later or former dates indicates that the book was written when it says it was written in, in the days of Moses. Right, in that 14th century time. I mean, it's very interesting. I mean, you can look at the structure of other treaties, Assyrian treaties that are you know, made during the time of, of the exile, leading up to it, and returning. And, and they have the sneak features, and they are nothing like Deuteronomy. But Deuteronomy is very similar to 14th century Hittite treaties. Right? That tells you it, it was written when it says it was written. But additionally, the fact that it reflects a treaty tells us that it's not primarily, and I want to stress that, it's not primarily about regulating behavior like law, though of course it does that. It is primarily about establishing and regulating the relationship that is going to exist between God and his people a very specific people the israelite people it's shaping their relationship just like a treaty would shape the relationship between the suzerain king right the king that's that's sort of the conquering king of the other nations and the vassal kings that he enters into a treaty with. And all throughout Deuteronomy, we see this idea reflected. So in Deuteronomy chapter 5, for example, if you want to turn with me there for a moment, Deuteronomy chapter 5, before the Ten Commandments are given again, or the Ten Words, Moses said, beginning in verse 2, The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. Not with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant, referring to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. He didn't make this covenant with them, but with us who are all of us here alive today. And then he goes on to repeat the Ten Commandments or the Ten Words only this time giving a different explanation as to the meaning of the Sabbath. But the point here is that Moses is identifying the relationship that is being established, the parties that are involved. And, and, and he's, 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 he's establishing or he's, he's giving shape through the ten words and the judgments what this relationship is going to be like, and he explicitly states that this relationship, this covenant, was not ever made with the patriarchs. Now, um, I know many in the Reformed world speak of the Ten Commandments as eternal law. And I love my Reformed heritage, but... When I hear this, I just, I can't get on board with it. I hear what they're saying, but I just can't square it. So often you will hear that the Ten Commandments are to be understood as eternal law. Of course, one of the reasons, because it was written by the finger of God, but the text simply does not say that. How it is structured does not indicate that. What is said about the function of the covenant and the function of the ten words and the judgments does not indicate that. Yes, we can say something like murder is always going to be sin wherever you are. Yes, adultery is always going to be sin wherever you are you can point to commands, of course, that reflect what is right and wrong and rightly say that they are right or wrong wherever you go. You can point to those ten commandments and say that very thing, but you can also do that with many of the other commands that are found throughout Deuteronomy that reflect morality and righteousness. The point, however, is that the ten words as such are given not as eternal law that is binding on all nations, but as instructions and stipulations that shape and define Israel's relationship to God. That's who this is given to. I think that's important because we want to say, at least I want to say, that all of these laws, all of these commands, all of these instructions, this Torah, is all good. And we want to uphold it. But we want to uphold it in the way that the Bible reflects. And so if the Bible does not speak about all of these commands as being eternally binding on all peoples and on all nations, which it does not. Because again, he explicitly says, this was not made with your fathers, which includes every command that you find there, every command among the Ten Commandments. If Scripture itself is not saying that those commands outline the way they are, are eternal law for all nations, we can't say that either. So then the question becomes, how do we relate to them? And that's what we'll, the more we go through these covenants, that's what we'll start unpacking some more, particularly when we get to the new covenant. I just want to say that there, is that there is a relationship between parties that is being established here, And what's establishing that relationship are those ten words and the judgments that follow. It gives shape to the relationship between those parties. Now, another important text where we see this covenant establishing the relationship between Israel as a nation And God is back in Deuteronomy 29, and specifically in verses 10 to 13. And I I just want to read uh, that text and and say a few things about it uh, briefly. So Deuteronomy chapter 29, beginning in verse 10, we read there, You are standing today, all of you, before the Lord your God the heads of your tribes, your elders, and your officers, all the men of Israel, your little ones, your wives, the sojourner who is in your camp, from the one who excuse me, chops your wood to the one who draws your water. And, and why are they all standing there? Why are they there, there together, as, as, assembling together? Verse 12 so that you may enter into the sworn covenant of the Lord your God. It is at this moment, the plains of Moab, that all of these people, the people of Israel, are officially entering into this, in a very real sense, new covenant. Not the new new covenant, but a new covenant that came after Sinai. They are officially entering into this, What what sometimes is called a Moabite covenant, because it's made in the plains of Moab. It is at this moment that this covenant is being established, and then he goes on to say, which the Lord your God is making with you today. A, A specific, unique relationship between God and Israel, and Israel from among the nations The Lord your God is making this with you today, verse 13, so that He may establish you today as His people. Again, this this covenant is giving shape to the nation. It's establishing their relationship in this treaty, if you will, between the God of creation and the nation of Israel. So He may establish you today as His people, and that he may be your God. And then notice, as he promised you, and as he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. So this, this also tells us something of the relationship between the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant. So, in the covenant with with Abraham, again, the fulfillment of that covenant did not depend on the obedience of Abraham, the righteousness of Abraham, the sinlessness of Abraham. It depended exclusively on God keeping His word. You'll remember the uh, the, the covenant making process that that took place in in Genesis fifteen when that. Uh, that Abrahamic covenant is made. Abraham's asleep, right? it, 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 And there's this, there's this, uh, there's this vision of, of what happens, right? Of this, this fiery pot that goes through these, these severed animals, right? It's, it's God who's in essence unilaterally making this this covenant and uh, securing by His own word the the promises of the covenant, and and of course, what did God promised to Abraham, He promised that He would give Abraham offspring, that they would be slaves in Egypt for 400 years, and then what? I'm going to bring them out, and I'm going to bring them to this land that I promised to give you. And here, in the making of this this Mosaic covenant, God is in essence... Fulfilling his promises to Abraham. We, we might say uh, understanding the, 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 the whole of, uh, of, of, of redemptive history, we might call this a partial fulfillment because we know there's even greater fulfillment uh, to come, uh, no doubt. But, but regardless, it is a fulfillment. God's keeping his promises. The reason why he's entering into this covenant with the nation of Israel is because he's keeping his promises to Abraham. So there's a sense in which this is a fulfillment of the Abrahamic uh, covenant, at least in part. So, you've got these texts here which is explaining to us that this covenant is about establishing this relationship between God and the nation of Israel And it's going to give shape to how this nation is to exist uh, within the land that God promised to give to their their fathers and and their father's offspring, which is is them. So that's one of the things that we see here. I also want to mention, um, too, just a couple other things, and then we'll we'll, we'll close with this, is um, the conditional nature of this covenant. Now, we've touched on this a little bit, but, of course, we see at the end of the book Right, these blessings and these curses. And I think it's important to remember that as you read through those blessings and curses, they're very um, what am I say earthly right? or earthy right? uh, In other words, if the people of Israel keep the covenant, they're not promised. the blessings that they're not promised is not eternal life. The importance the, the point being is, This covenant was never intended to be the means by which you become righteous before God. Never. The blessings and the curses of the covenant already are supposed to assume the relationship that the people of Israel have to God. That He is a saving God who despite their smallness, despite their own unrighteousness, He worked salvation for them. that The the very beginning of the covenant indicates to them that salvation is exclusively a work of God. You don't work for it. You don't earn it. They were slaves in Egypt and boom! They cried out, God saved them. So the covenant that's made here was never intended to be something by which the people of Israel became righteous, justified before God, and, and their eternity was secured. Now, these, these blessings have to do with blessings in the land. The land will flourish. The, 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 the fruit of your womb will flourish. Nations will come against you, and I'll turn them away in seven different directions. You, you will be established in the land, and the curses course, have to do with the land and their life in the land and their relationship to God in the land. If you break this covenant, nations will come against you and they'll scatter you everywhere. Cursed will you be in the womb. You will be barren. You will not be fruitful and multiply. The land will be cursed because of you. So, So those blessings and cursings, they all have to do with with very earthy things, right? It was never, the, this covenant was never intended to be the means by which eternal life was, was earned. Right? So there's a, there's a conditional nature of the covenant. Do these things and you'll be blessed in the land. Do not do them. You'll come under curses in the land. And I also want to point out as well the the assumed and stated weakness of this covenant, which, which also indicates something about its inherent temporary nature from the beginning. Right? But, but Let me just say something about its inherent weakness. So if you look again at Deuteronomy chapter 29, notice what, what is said there beginning in verse um, 2. It says, And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, You have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land. The great trials that your eyes saw, the signs and those great wonders. These are things that they saw with their own eyes. But then verse 4. But to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. I have led you 40 years in the wilderness. Your clothes have not worn out on you, and your sandals have not worn off your feet. You have not eaten bread and you have not drunk wine or strong drink that you may know that I am the Lord, your God. And when you came to this place, Sihon, the king of Heshbon, and Og, the king of Bashan, came out against us to battle, but we defeated them. We took their land, we gave it for an inheritance to the Reubenites, the Gadites, the half-tribe, the Manassites. Therefore, keep the words of this covenant and do them that you may prosper in all that you do. They are commanded to keep the law They're commanded to to receive this Torah, these instructions, and to obey it. But at the same time, there is an assumed and stated weakness. It's revealed to them that even though they've seen all of these miracles that God has done for them, the miraculous ways that He's provided for them in the wilderness, the ways that he's saved them from these more powerful kings, even though they've seen all of these things, they haven't really seen. They haven't really perceived. They don't have hearts to understand God's works. They have uncircumcised hearts and God has not given them circumcised hearts. The, the point being, They're commanded to keep the law. They're not going to keep the law. And the law itself does not have power in and of itself to give them the hearts that they need. There's a weakness to it. It's it's external. It's kind of like what Jeremiah 31 talks about, right? It's written on tablets of stone, but it's not on the tablets of the heart. There's, there's indications throughout the law that, that there's something inherently weak about it in terms of what it can do for the people of Israel. And of course, as the rest of Deuteronomy continues, it's, that's what we see. There's prophecy that's, that's given. They're going to break the law. They're going to come under the curses of the law. God's going to exile them from the land. That's what's in their future. There's even a song that they're supposed to memorize and sing that generation after generation would constantly remind them. That's what's going to happen. So there's an inherent weakness to it, and and this plays out in in other places in in Scripture. Of course, Psalm 110, a very pivotal psalm that speaks of this... uh, this, this lord who is David's lord, the messianic king. And one of the things you'll remember that's sad about this coming king is that he's going to be a priest. Priest after the order of Melchizedek. Right. And of course, the, the author of Hebrews, when you get to the book of Hebrews, picks up on that. And basically, the, the argument that he makes is if this king is, is going to come and he's going to be a, a priest in the order of Melchizedek and, and, and not in the... The, the, the order of the Levites. Why would he speak about this, this new priest coming if the Levitical system was sufficient in itself? That's, that's basically his argument. What need would there be for another man to come who is in the, who is in the priesthood of Melchizedek if the Levitical order is sufficient? point being is that there's there's text all throughout the Old Testament even within the law itself that indicated the temporal nature of this very law um, so so again that sort of goes back to some of the things that I was saying earlier this this law was never intended uh, to be something that um, would be eternal, something that would last forever it was it was temporary and it, it served a purpose at a, at a particular time and then once Christ fulfills it, and we'll look at more of that when we get to the, the new covenant, it, it's, its purpose is, is no longer, right? Uh, it has faded away, and um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, not abrogated, but um, obsolete. I'm thinking of the, the, the word in Hebrews, right? It has become obsolete. So there's there's much more that 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 could be said. Let me uh, just stop there, and then we'll see if there's um, uh, any questions or anything that you.